A Treatise on the Religious Affection, Section 13. Christian practice or holy life is a manifestation and sign of the sincerity of a professing Christian to the eyes of his neighbors and brethren. And that this is the chief sign of grace in this respect is very evident from the word of God. Christ, who knew best how to give us rules to judge of others, has repeated and inculcated the rule that we should know them by their fruits. Matthew 7.16 You shall know them by their fruits. And then after arguing the point and giving clear reasons why men's fruits must be the chief evidence of what sort they are, in the following verses he closes by repeating the assertion, verse 20, Wherefore, by their fruits he shall know them. Again, chapter 12, 33. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. As much as to say, it is a very absurd thing for any to suppose that the tree is good and yet the fruit bad, that the tree is of one sort and the fruit of another, for the proper evidence of the nature of the tree is its fruit. Nothing else can be intended by that last clause in the verse. For the tree is known by its fruit, then that the tree is chiefly known by its fruit, that this is the main and most proper diagnostic by which one tree is distinguished from another. So Luke 6.44, every tree is known by his own fruit. Christ nowhere says, you shall know the tree by its leaves or flowers, or you shall know men by their talk, by the good story they tell of their experiences, by the manner and air of their speaking, or emphasis and pathos of expression, or you shall know them by their speaking feelingly, or by abundance of talk, or by many tears and affectionate expressions, or by the affections ye feel in your hearts towards them. But by their fruits ye shall know them. The tree is known by its fruit. Every tree is known by its own fruit. And as this is the evidence that Christ has directed us mainly to look at in others, in judging of them, so it is the evidence that Christ has mainly directed us to give to others, whereby they may judge of us. Matthew 5.16 Let your light so shine before men, that others, seeing your good works, may glorify your Father which is in heaven. Here Christ directs us to manifest our godliness to others. Godliness is, as it were, a light that shines in the soul. Christ directs that this light should not only shine within, but that it should shine out before men, that they may see it. But which way shall this be? It is by our good works. Christ does not say that others hearing your good works, your good story, or your pathetical expressions, but that others seeing your good works may glorify your Father which is in heaven. Doubtless, when Christ gives us a rule how to make our light shine, that others may have evidence of it, his rule is the best. And the apostles mention a Christian practice as the principal ground of their esteem of persons as true Christians. As the apostle Paul in the sixth chapter of Hebrews, there the apostle in the beginning of the chapter speaks of persons who have great common illuminations, who have been enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, who afterwards fall away, and are like barren ground, that is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. 
And then he immediately adds in the ninth verse, expressing his charity for the Christian Hebrews, as having that saving grace which is better than all these common illuminations. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. And then in the next verse, he tells them what was the reason he had such good thoughts of them. He does not say it was because they had given him a good account of a work of God upon their souls, and taught very experimentally, but it was their work and labor of love. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And the same apostle speaks of faithfully serving God in practice as a proper proof to others of men's loving Christ above all and preferring his honor to their private interest. Philippians 2:21 and 22 For all seek their own not the things which are Jesus Christ's. But ye know the proof of him that as a son with the Father he has served me in the gospel. So the Apostle John expresses the same as the ground of his good opinion of Gaius, 3 John 3-6. to For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee. But how did the brethren testify of the truth that was in Gaius? And how did the Apostle judge of the truth that was in him? It was not because they testified that he had given them a good account of the steps of his experiences and talked like one that felt what he said and had the very language of a Christian, but they testified that he walked in the truth, as it follows, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Beloved, thou dost faithfully whatsoever thou dost to the brethren and to strangers which have borne witness of thy charity before the church. Thus the apostle explains what the brethren had borne witness of when they came and testified of his walking in the truth. And the apostle seems in this same place to give it as a rule to Gaius how he should judge of others. In verse 10 he mentions one Diotrephes that did not conduct himself well and led away others after him. And then in the eleventh verse he directs Gaius to beware of such and not to follow them and gives him a rule whereby he may know them exactly agreeable to that rule Christ had given before. By their fruits he shall know them, says the apostle. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doth good is of God, but he that doth evil hath not seen God. And I would further observe that the Apostle James, expressly comparing that way of showing others our faith in Christianity by our practice or works, with other ways of showing our faith without works or not by works, does plainly and abundantly prefer the former, James 2.18. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. A manifestation of our faith without works, or in a way diverse from works, is a manifestation of it in words, whereby a man professes faith. As the Apostle says, verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith? Therefore, here are two ways of manifesting to our neighbor what is in our hearts, one by what we say and the other by what we do. And as the scripture plainly teaches that practice is the best evidence of the sincerity of professing Christians, so reason teaches the same thing. 
Reason shows that men's deeds are better and more faithful interpreters of their minds than their words. The common sense of all mankind through all ages and nations teaches them to judge of men's hearts, chiefly by their practice in other matters, as whether a man be a loyal subject, a true lover, a dutiful child, or a faithful servant. If a man professes a great deal of love and friendship to another, reason teaches all men that such a profession is not so great in evidence of his being a real and hearty friend is his appearing a friend in deeds, being faithful and constant to his friend in prosperity and adversity, ready to lay out himself and deny himself and suffer in his personal interest to do him a kindness. A wise man will trust to such evidences of the sincerity of friendship further than a thousand earnest professions and solemn declarations and most affectionate expressions of friendships and words. And there is equal reason why practice should also be looked upon as the best evidence of friendship towards Christ. Reason says the same that Christ said in John 14:21, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Thus, if we see a man who in the course of his life seems to follow and imitate Christ, and greatly to exert and deny himself for his honor, and to promote his kingdom and interest in the world, reason teaches that this is an evidence of love to Christ, more to be depended on than if a man only says he has love to him, and tells of his inward experiences, what strong love he felt, and how his heart was drawn out in love at such and such a time, when it may be there appears but little imitation of Christ in his behavior. He seems backward to do any great matter for him, or to put himself out of his way for the promoting of his kingdom, but seems to be apt to excuse himself whenever he is called to deny himself for Christ. So if a man, in declaring his experiences, tells how he found his heart weaned from the world and saw the vanity of it, so that all looked as nothing to him at such and such times, and professes that he gives up all to God and calls heaven and earth to witness to it, but yet in his practice is violent in pursuing the world, what he gets he keeps close, is exceeding loath to part with much of it to charitable and pious uses, it comes from him almost like his heart's blood. But there is another professing Christian that says not a great deal, yet in his behavior appears ready at all times to forsake the world, whenever it stands in the way of his duty, and is free to part with it at any time to promote religion and the good of his fellow creatures. Reason teaches that the latter gives far the most credible manifestation of a heart weaned from the world. And if a man appears to walk humbly before God in men, and to be of a conversation that savors of a broken heart, appearing patient and resigned to God under affliction and meek in his behavior amongst men, this is a better evidence of humiliation than if a person only tells how great a sense he had of his own unworthiness, how he was brought to lie in the dust, quite emptied of himself, and to see himself all over filthy and abominable, and so on and so on, but yet acts as if he looked upon himself one of the first and best of saints, and by just right, the head of all the Christians in the town. He is assuming, self-willed and impatient of the least contradiction or opposition. We may be assured in such a case that a man's practice comes from a lower place in his heart than his profession.
So to mention no more instances, if a professor of Christianity manifest in his behavior a tender spirit towards others in calamity, ready to bear their burdens with them, willing to spend his substance for them, and to suffer many inconveniences in his worldly interest to promote the good of other souls and bodies, is not this a more credible manifestation of a spirit of love to men than only a man's telling what love he felt to others at certain times, how he pitied their souls, how his soul was in travail for them, and how he felt a hearty love and pity to his enemies, when in his behavior he seems to be of a very selfish spirit, all for himself and none for his neighbors, and perhaps envious and contentious. Persons in a pang of affection may think they have a willingness of heart for great things, to do much and to suffer much, and so may profess it very earnestly and confidently, when really their hearts are far from it. Thus many in their affectionate pangs have thought themselves willing to be damned eternally for the glory of God. Passing affections easily produce words, and words are cheap, and godliness is more easily feigned in words than in actions. Christian practice is a costly, laborious thing. The self-denial that is required of Christians, the narrowness of the way that leads to life, does not consist in words, but in practice. Hypocrites may much more easily be brought to talk like saints than to act like saints. Thus it is plain that Christian practice is the best sign or manifestation of the true godliness of a professing Christian to the eye of his neighbors. The Religious Affection, Section 14 Christian practice is a distinguishing and sure evidence of grace to persons' own consciences. This is very plain in 1 John 2.3. Hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And the testimony of our consciences with respect to our good deeds is spoken of as that which may give us assurance of our own godliness. 1 John 3.18 and 19 My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed, or in the original, in work, and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. And the Apostle Paul, Hebrews 6, speaks of the work and labor of love of the Christian Hebrews, is that which both gave him a persuasion that they had something above the highest common illuminations, and also as that evidence which tendeth to give them the highest assurance of hope concerning themselves. Verse 9. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have showed towards his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. So the apostle directs the Galatians to examine their behavior or practice that they might have rejoicing in themselves in their own happy state, Galatians 6, 4. Let every man prove his own work. So shall he have rejoicing in himself, and not in another. And the psalmist says, Psalm 119, 6, Then shall I not be ashamed, when I have respect unto all thy commandments, i.e., then shall I be bold and assured and steadfast in my hope. And in that of our Savior, Matthew seven nineteen and 20, Every tree 
that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Though Christ gives us first as a rule by which we should judge of others, yet in the words that next follow, he plainly shows that he intends it also as a rule by which we should judge ourselves. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and so on. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. I shall have occasion to mention other texts that show the same thing hereafter. But for the greater clearness in this manner, I would first show how Christian practice doing good works or keeping Christ's commandments is to be taken when the scriptures represent it as a sure sign to our own consciences that we are real Christians. And secondly, we'll prove that this is a chief of all evidences that men can have of their own sincere godliness first. I would show how Christian practice or keeping Christ's commandments is to be taken when the scripture represents it as a sure evidence to our own consciences that we are sincere Christians. And here I would observe that we cannot reasonably suppose when the scripture in this case speaks of good works, good fruit, and keeping Christ's commandments, that it has respect merely to what is external, or the motion and action of the body, without including respect to any aim or intention of the agent, or any act of his understanding or will. For consider men's actions so, and they are no more good works or acts of obedience than the regular motions of a clock, nor are they considered as any human actions at all. The actions of the body taken thus are neither acts of obedience nor disobedience, any more than the motions of a body in convulsion. But the obedience and fruit that is spoken of is the obedience and fruit of the man, and therefore not only the acts of the body, but the obedience of the soul, consisting in the acts and practice of the soul. Not that I suppose that when the scripture speaks in this case of gracious works, fruit, and practice, that in these expressions is included all inward piety and holiness of heart, both principle and exercise, both spirit and practice, because, then, in the things being given as a sign of gracious principle in the heart, the same thing would be given as a sign of itself, and there would be no distinction between root and fruit. But only the gracious and holy act of the soul is meant, and given as a sign of the holy principle and good estate. Neither is every kind of inward exercise of grace meant, but the practical exercise, that exercise of the soul, an exertion of inward holiness, which there is in an obediential act, or that exertion of the mind in act of grace, which issues and terminates in what they may call the imperate acts of the will, in which something is directed and commanded by the soul to be done and brought to pass in practice. 
It is therefore exceedingly absurd and even ridiculous for any to pretend that they have a good heart while they have a wicked life or do not bring forth the fruit of universal holiness in their practice. For it is proved, in fact, that such men do not love God above all. It is foolish to dispute against plain fact and experience. Men that live in ways of sin and yet flatter themselves that they shall go to heaven or expect to be received hereafter as holy persons without a holy life and practice act as though they expected to make a fool of their judge. Which is implied in what the Apostle says, Galatians 6, 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. As much as to say, do not deceive yourselves with an expectation of reaping life everlasting hereafter if you sow not to the Spirit here. It is in vain to think that God will be made a fool of by you, that he will be imposed upon with shadows instead of substance and with vain pretenses instead of that good fruit which he expects, when the contrary to what you pretend appears plainly in your life before his face." In this manner, the word mock is sometimes used in Scripture. Thus Delilah says to Samson, Behold, thou hast mocked me and told me lies. Judges 16, 10, and 13. In other words, thou hast baffled me, intending to make a fool of me, as if I might be easily turned off with any vain pretense instead of the truth. So it is said that Lot, when he told his sons-in-law that God would destroy that place, he seemed as one that mocked to his sons-in-law. Genesis 19.14 He seemed as one that would make a game of them, as though they were credulous fools. But the great judge, whose eyes are as a flame of fire, will not be mocked or baffled with any pretenses without a holy life. If in his name men have prophesied and wrought miracles and have had faith, so that they could remove mountains and cast out devils, and however high their religious affections have been, however great resemblances they have had of grace, and though their hiding place has been so dark and deep that no human skill nor search could find them out, yet if they are workers or practicers of iniquity, they cannot hide their hypocrisy from their judge. Job 34.22 there is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. Would a wise prince suffer himself to be mocked by a subject who should pretend that he was loyal, and who should tell his prince that he had an entire affection for him, and that such and such a time he had experience of it, and felt his affection strongly working towards him, and should come expecting to be accepted and rewarded by his prince as one of his best friends on that account, though he lived in rebellion against him, following some pretender to his crown? and from time to time stirring up sedition against him? Or would a master suffer himself to be shammed and gulled by a servant that should pretend to great experiences of love and honor towards him in his heart, and a great sense of his worthiness and kindness, when at the same time he refused to obey and serve him? Argument too. As reason shows that those things which occur in the course of life which put it to the proof whether men will prefer God to other things in practice are the proper trial of the sincerity of their hearts, so the same are represented as a proper trial of the sincerity of professors in the scripture. There we find that such things are called by that very name trials or temptations. 
both words of the same signification. The things that put it to the proof whether men will prefer God to other things in practice are the difficulties of religion, or those things which occur that make the practice of duty difficult and cross to other principles besides the love of God, because in them God and other things are both set before men together for their actual and practical choice, and it comes to this that we cannot hold to both, but one or the other must be forsaken. And these things are all over the scripture called by the name of trials or proofs. And they are called by this name, because hereby professors are tried and proved of what sort they be, whether they be really what they profess and appear to be, and because in them the reality of the supreme love of God is brought to the test of experiment in fact. They are the proper proofs, in which it is truly determined by experience whether men have a thorough disposition of heart to cleave to God or not. Deuteronomy 8.2 and thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee, and to prove thee, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. Judges 2.21 and 22. I also will not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died that through them I may prove Israel whether they will keep the way of the Lord. So chapter 3, 1 and 4, and Exodus 16, 4. In the scripture, when it calls these difficulties of religion by the name of temptations or trials, explains itself to mean thereby the trial or experiment of their faith. James 1, verses 2 and 3. My brethren... Count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 Now for a season you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold, and so on. So the Apostle Paul speaks of that extensive duty of parting with our substance to the poor as a proof of the sincerity of the love of Christians, 2 Corinthians 8.8. 8. And the difficulties of religion are often represented in Scripture as being the trial of professors in the same manner that the furnace is a proper trial of gold and silver. Psalm 66, 10 and 11, Thou, O God, hast proved us. Thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Thou broughtest us into the net. Thou laidest affliction upon our loins. If trial of sincerity be the proper name of these difficulties of religion, then doubtless these difficulties of religion are properly and eminently the trial of sincerity for they are doubtless eminently what they are called by the Holy Ghost. God gives things their names from that which is eminently their nature. And if it be so, that these things are the proper and eminent trial, proof, or experiment of the sincerity of professors, then certainly the result of the trial or experience, that is, person's behavior or practice under such trials, is a proper and eminent evidence of their sincerity. For they are called trials or proofs only with regard to the result, and because the effect is eminently the proof or evidence. And this is the most proper proof and evidence to the conscience of those that are the subjects of these trials. 
For when God is said by these things to try men and prove them to see what is in their hearts, whether they will keep his commandments or no, we are not to understand that it is for his own information, or that he may obtain evidence himself of their sincerity, for he needs no trials for his information, but chiefly for their conviction and to exhibit evidence to their consciences. Quote, I am persuaded as Calvin is, that all the several trials of men are to show them to themselves and to the world that they be but counterfeits and to make saints known to themselves a better. Romans 5, 5 Tribulation works trial in that hope. Proverbs 17, 3 If you will know whether it will hold weight, the trial will tell you, in quote Shepherd's Parable. Thus, when God is said to prove Israel by the difficulties they met with in the wilderness, and by the difficulties they met with from their enemies in Canaan, to know what was in their hearts, whether they would keep his commandments or no, it must be understood that it was to discover them to themselves, that they might know what was in their own hearts. So when God tempted or tried Abraham with that difficult command of offering up his son, it was not for his satisfaction whether he feared God or no, but for Abraham's own greater satisfaction and comfort, and the more clear manifestation of the favor of God to him. When Abraham had proved faithful under this trial, God says to him, Now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me which plainly implies that in this practical exercise of Abraham's grace under this trial was a clearer evidence of the truth of his grace than ever was before, and the greatest evidence to Abraham's conscience, because God himself gives it to Abraham as such for his comfort and rejoicing, and speaks of it to him as what might be the greatest evidence to his conscience of his being upright in the sight of his judge. Which proves what I say, that holy practice under trials is the highest evidence of the sincerity of professors to their own consciences. And we find that Christ frequently took the same method to convince the consciences of those that pretended friendship to him and to show them what they were. This was the method he took with a rich young man, Matthew 19:16, and so on. He seemed to show a great respect to Christ. He came kneeling to him, and called him good master, and made a great profession of obedience to the commandments. But Christ tried him by bidding him go and sell all that he had, and give to the poor, and come and take up his cross and follow him, telling him that then he should have treasure in heaven. So he tried another, Matthew 8.20. He made a great profession of respect to Christ, says he, Lord. I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Christ immediately puts his friendship to the proof by telling him that foxes had holes and the birds of the air had nests, but that the Son of Man had not where to lay his head. And thus Christ is wont still to try professed disciples in general in the course of his providence. So the seed sown in every kind of ground, stony ground, thorny ground, and good ground, which in all appears alike, when it first springs up, yet is tried, and the difference is made to appear by the burning heat of the sun. Seeing, therefore, that these are the things which God employs to try us, it is undoubtedly the surest way, in order to pass a right judgment, to try ourselves by the same things. 
These trials are not for his information, but for ours. Therefore, we ought to receive our information from thence. The surest way to know our gold is to examine it in God's furnace, whether he tries it for that very end that we may see what it is. If we have a mind to know whether a building stands strong or no, we must look upon it when the wind blows. If we would know whether that which appears in the form of wheat has a real substance of wheat, or be only chaff, we must observe it when it is winnowed. If we would know whether a staff be strong or a rotten broken reed, we must observe it when it is leaned on, when weight is borne upon it. If we would weigh ourselves justly, it must be in God's appointed scales. Richard Sibbs, in his bruised reed, says, quote, When Christ's will cometh in competition with any worldly loss or gain, yet if then, in that particular case, the heart will stoop to Christ, it is a true sign. For the truest trial of the power of grace is in such particular cases as touch us nearest, for there our corruption maketh the greatest head. When Christ came home to the young man in the gospel, he lost a disciple of him, end quote. Mr. Flavel speaks of a holy practice under trials as the greatest evidence of grace. No man, says he, can say what he is, whether his grace be true or false, until they be tried and examined by those things which are to them as fire is to gold. Touchstone of Sincerity, Chapter 4, Section 1. Again, speaking of great difficulties and sufferings in the way of duty, wherein a person must actually part with what is dearest of a worldly nature, or with his duty, he says, quote, that such sufferings as these will discover the falseness and rottenness of men's hearts cannot be doubted. If you consider that this is a fire designed by God for this very use and purpose, to separate the gold from the dross, so you will find it in 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that is to try you, i.e., the very design and aim of providence in permitting and ordering them is to try you. Upon this account, you find the hour of persecution in a suitable notion called the hour of temptation or probation, Revelation 3.10. For then professors are sifted to the very brand, searched to the very bottom principles. This is a day that burns as an oven. All that do wickedly shall be as stubble, Malachi 4.1. For in that day the predominant interest must appear and be discovered. It can be concealed no longer. No man can serve two masters, saith Christ, Luke 16:13. A man may serve many masters if they all command the same thing, or things subordinate to each other, but he cannot serve two masters. If their commands clash and interfere with each other, and such are the commands of Christ in the flesh in a suffering hour, thus the two interests come in full opposition. And now have but patience and wait a little, and you will discern which is predominant. A dog follows two men while they both walk one way, and you know not which of the two is his master. Stay but a little until their path parts, and then you shall quickly see who is his master. So it is in this case. And again, chapter 8, 3. 
Great numbers of persons are deceived and destroyed by trusting to seeming untried grace. This was a miserable condition of the Laodicean professors. They reckoned themselves rich, but were really poor. All is not gold that glitters. Their gold, as they accounted it, was never tried in the fire. If a man's whole estate lay in some precious stone, suppose a rich diamond, how is he concerned to have it thoroughly tried, to see whether it will bear a smart stroke with a hammer, or fly like a Bristol diamond? Again in the same place, the promises of salvation are made over to tried grace, and that only as will endure the trial." Quote. Thomas Shepard writes, The Lord will try you. God hath his trying times, and they were never sent, but to discover who were dross, who were gold. And the main end of all God's trials is to discover this truth that I am now pressing upon you. Some have a thorough work, and now the trial discovers the truth, as in Abraham, Hebrews 11.17. Some have a superficial work, and they fall in trial as in Saul, and it doth discover it was but an overly work. For this is the question God makes, is it thorough or not? I saith the carnal heart, yes, saith the gracious heart. Hence it is strange to see what men will do when a trial comes, end quote. There is an hour of temptation which tries men which will discover men indeed. These trials in the course of our practice are, as it were, the balances in which our hearts are weighed, or in which Christ in the world, or Christ in his competitors, as to the esteem and regard they have in our hearts, are weighed, or are put into opposite scales by which there is opportunity to see which preponderates. When a man is brought to the dividing of paths, the one of which leads to Christ, and the other to the objects of his lusts, to see which way he will go, when said, as it were, between Christ and the world, Christ on the right hand and the world on the left, so that if he goes to one he must leave the other, this is just the same thing as laying Christ and the world in two opposite scales, and as going to the one and leaving the other is just the same thing as the sinking of one scale and rising of the other. A man's practice, therefore, under the trials of God's providence, is as much the proper experiments and evidence of the superior inclination of his heart, as a motion of the balance with different weights and opposite scales is a proper experiment of the superior weight. As a fruit of holy practice is the chief evidence of the truth of grace, so the degree in which experiences have influence on a person's practice is the surest evidence of the degree of that which is spiritual and divine in his experiences. Whatever pretenses persons may make to great discoveries, great love and joys, they are no further to be regarded than they have influence on his practice. Not but that allowances must be made for the natural temper, but that does not hinder but that the degree of grace is justly measured by the degree of the effect in practice. For the effect of grace is as great, and the alteration as remarkable in a person of a very ill natural temper as another. Although a person of such a temper will not behave himself so well with the same degree of grace as another, the diversity from what was before conversion may be as great. Because a person of a good natural temper did not behave himself so ill be before conversion. 
Thus, I have endeavored to represent the evidence there is that Christian practice is the chief of all the signs of saving grace. What has been said of the importance of holy practice as the main sign of sincerity, there is nothing in this legal, nothing derogatory to the freedom and sovereignty of gospel grace, nothing in the least clashing with the gospel doctrine of justification by faith alone without the works of the law, nothing in the least tending to lessen the glory of the mediator in our dependence on his righteousness, nothing infringing on the special prerogatives of faith in the affair of our salvation, nothing in any wise detracting from the glory of God and his mercy, exalting man or diminishing his dependence and obligation, so that if any are against the importance of holy practice as explained, it must only be from a senseless aversion to the letters and sound of the word works, when there is no reason in the world to be given for it, but what may be given with equal force, why they should have an aversion to the words holiness, godliness, grace, religion, experience, and even faith itself. For to make a righteousness of any of these is as legal and as inconsistent with the way of the new covenant as to make a righteousness of holy practice. Shepherd writes, You say you know Christ, and the love and good will of Christ towards you, and that he is a propitiation for your sins. How do you know this? He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. 1 John 2.4 True, might some reply, he that keeps not the commands of Christ hath thereby a sure evidence that he knows him not, and that he is not united to him. But is this any evidence that we do know him, and that we are united to him, if we do keep his commandments? Yes, verily, saith the Apostle, hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And again, verse 5, hereby know we that we are in him. What can be more plain? What a vanity is it to say that this is running upon a covenant of works? Oh, beloved, it is a sad thing to hear such questions and such cold answers also. The sanctification possibly may be in evidence. Maybe. Is it not certain? Assuredly, to deny it is as bad as to affirm that God's own promises of favor are not sure evidences thereof, and consequently that they are lies and untruths. Our Savior, who is no legal preacher, pronounceth, and consequently evidenceth, blessedness by eight or nine promises expressly made to such persons as had inherent graces. Matthew 5, 3, and 4, and so on, end quote. It is greatly to the hurt of religion for persons to insist little on those things which a scripture insists most upon, is of most importance in the evidence of our interest in Christ, under a notion that to lay weight on these things is legal, in an old covenant way, to neglect the exercises and effectual operations of grace in practice, and insist almost wholly on discoveries and the method of the imminent exercises of conscience and grace and contemplation, depending on an ability to make nice distinctions in these matters, and a faculty of accurate discerning in them from philosophy or experience is highly injurious. It is in vain to seek for any better or any further signs than those which the scriptures have most expressly mentioned, and most frequently insisted on as signs of godliness. 
They who pretend to a greater accuracy in giving signs, or by their extraordinary experience or insight into the nature of things, to give more distinguishing marks, which shall more thoroughly search out and detect the hypocrite, are but subtle to darken their own minds and the minds of others. Their refinings and nice discerning are in God's sight, but refined foolishness and sagacious delusion. Here are applicable those words of Augur, Proverbs 30, 5 and 6. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Our wisdom in discerning with regard to the hearts of men is not much to be trusted. We can see but a little way into the nature of the soul and the depths of man's heart. The ways are many whereby persons' affections may be moved without any supernatural influence. The natural springs of the affections are various and secret. Many things have oftentimes a joint influence on the affections. The imagination, natural temper, education, the common influences of the Spirit of God, a surprising concourse of affecting circumstances, an extraordinary coincident of things in the course of men's thoughts, together with the subtle management of invisible malicious spirits. No philosophy or experience will ever be sufficient to guide us safely through this labyrinth and maze without our closely following the clue which God has given us in His Word. God knows His own reasons, why He insists on some things and plainly sets them forth as what we should try ourselves by rather than others. It may be it is because He knows that these things are attended with less perplexity and that we are less liable to be deceived by them than others. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.